This is episode 6-3 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And they've finally gotten to the end of this long saga, Karen. Our listeners, I mean. Yeah. Where, wherein we've given our Fosdem talk. Well, and they're actually going to hear the talk. So, uh, so, I, I, so actually, we need to take a survey. So let's do that. Um, so email in to uh, allcast at faith.us um, and tell us whether you like what we're doing here. So we're going to be doing in upcoming episodes, various different interviews and talks. And the question I have is whether you want us to include the audio of the talk in the episode. We're going to do that today. We're going to include the audio of our talk. But if you have strong opinions either way about this, my, my feeling is it should be included because there are people who listen to this walking around and they, and they don't want to like put it on their player and then get out somewhere and discover, oh yeah, you're supposed to download some other audio from some other site to be able to follow this episode. So I'm inclined to put it in and then ask Dan to put a little, uh, his voice in just to say, speed forward. If you want to skip the talk itself to this, to hear us again, uh, not giving the talk. That's my, that's what I think is the best option. I think it's good too, because then I think that people who don't want to listen to it, who want to watch the video can just go ahead and do that. Yeah, I think that's the best option because people can, people who want to watch the video can just speed through. And I think Dan will be willing to put in because he'll, he'll, he'll be the one who knows uh, what the time index is to speed forward to once he pastes this all together. So hopefully we'll, we'll just hear Dan's voice and you'll say, Oh, if you've already watched the video, just speed forward to this moment and then you'll pick up right after the talk. And then those who want to actually hear it in the podcast, it'll be right there. Cool. So right now, what you're about to hear is the keynote talk that Karen and I gave. What was the date, Karen? I, I don't have that in front of me. Was I'm that- actually not sure either. But um, but you'll. What's interesting is like we we talked here about all the things that we would that we were planning to say, and I think recording those episodes really shaped the framework for what we spoke about. Um, but you'll see we edited it down quite a bit. Yeah. So it's on. This was given on Saturday, uh, February second, twenty nineteen at 10 a.m. European time. So the talk you're going to hear right now is the one we gave there. If you'd rather see it as a video with the slides and everything intermixed, um, you can go to the FOSDEM site. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Uh, It's in the FOSDEM schedule in the keynotes. Uh, It's in the Jansen room. It's the first talk that day in the Jansen room after the intro remarks. Uh, And there's video recording links on there if you want to go look at that. So with that, you should hear Dan next telling you to, if you want to jump forward past it, otherwise you can listen to it and we'll rejoin you after it's over. See you then. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you a brief service announcement. If you would like to skip the talk audio and get straight to the comments at the end, as Bradley suggested, you can do that by skipping forward on your audio players to 46 minutes. That's approximately 46 minutes, and you should be there. We thank you for travelling with us today, and we wish you a pleasant onward journey.
let me introduce and let's welcome Bradley and Karen. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is our FOSDEM keynote. <laughs> uh, as, raise your hand if you have heard of the Software Freedom Conservancy. That's like, oh my gosh, yay, that's like more than half the room. Um, the so, people in the live stream, how do they raise their hands? About half of the people who... <laughs> no, I'm asking how the live stream people oh, raise their hands for us. <laughs> I see. Uh, so the Software Freedom Conservancy is a charitable organization. We're based in the United States, but we are a global organization. We are the foundation for coming up on 50 free software projects, um, many of which you're using. I think the logos speak for themselves. Um, so we are, uh, we do everything that our project, we are, we are the foundation for our projects. So our projects problems are our problems. and. Um, uh, we are partners and work together. Um, we are also the home of Outreachy, which uh, is a diversity initiative um, and bringing uh, uh, underrepresented people into free and open source software. Um, and we are perhaps most well known for um, enforcing the GPL. So you might want to. Uh -huh. um, on behalf of Linux kernel developers who have asked us to, and on behalf of our member project. Um, also, on Monday, we're having a, a conference all about CopyLeft called CopyLeftCon, or CopyLeftConf. Yep. Um, and so that's on Monday, and you can come to our booth and buy tickets yep. for it or buy tickets online. Yep. It's 15 euro uh, if you're a hobbyist, and um, I'm excited. We're going to have a whole day to talk about just CopyLeft. Um, so these are the kinds of things that we do. And also, Karen and I try very hard uh, and have for many years to be people who use only free software for all the work that we do. So raise your hand if you try to use free software for as many things as you can. Okay, that Almost is... everybody. Yeah, that's like more than three quarters of the room. That's everybody here, <laughs> which is probably why you came to this talk. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we care a lot about software freedom. We care about it for a variety of reasons. We care about it from a very personal issue in terms of the software that we want to use and that we want to rely on. And we care about it from a societal perspective um, because as all of our software becomes more and more connected, more of our software becomes critical. And without, the, without software freedom, we will, uh, we will lose our, um, our, our um, autonomy and, uh, and we will be unable to, uh, to really rely on the technology that, that we've integrated into our lives. And I started an industry in the early 1990s that was mostly proprietary software. So I lived in a world where I had some free software, but most of what I was using, supporting, as a sysadmin and even developing was proprietary software. And I became completely disillusioned with the technology industry as a whole. It's why I became a software freedom activist, because I couldn't stand anymore the problems that proprietary software created in people's lives. The way that it held developers back didn't allow them to improve their own software. And there was a time in the late 2000s, mid 2000s, late 2000s, which I tend to think of as the golden age of software freedom. There was a moment in history where computing was somewhat rare uh, compared to today for most people. 
And also, free software had succeeded enough that there was the ability to actually do anything you wanted to do with a computer, generally speaking, with free software. The moment this became clear to me was in the mid-2000, the end of 2004 and the beginning of 2005, I built a set of servers. And that was right around the time serial ATA became the de facto standard for drives as opposed to parallel ATA. But I bought all parallel ATA cards. And the reason I did that was because at the end of 2004, there was no free software driver for Linux for serial ATA, any serial ATA card on the market. By the end of 2005, just one year later, every single card on the market that was serial ATA had a Linux driver, and many of them only had Linux drivers, no Windows drivers. That was a moment of change for free software, and was the time when, if you wanted to do a job with software, you could find free software to do it. And it was true for laptops as well. Yeah, and I think still many of us here have standardized on some of the equipment we were using then. Uh, many of us have used our X200s for a very, very long time. And it's frustrating in a way because so many of us are in this field, are care about software, care about technology because we love technology. We love new technology. And it's sort of strange that, uh, that we sort of wind up, because of our love of technology and our insistence on ethical technology, we wind up standardizing on old equipment and not adopting the new, the, the new technology that, we, that would have drawn us to this field to begin with. But the laptops of that era, they still work with free software. They even work with free BIOSes. You can install from bottom to top in the older ThinkPad models 100% free software and drive all the hardware on the device. But there aren't many devices like that anymore. And in fact, there are some devices that are even worse. And this is a, a picture of, uh, of my defibrillator. Everything changed for me when I found out that I had a heart condition. Um, and I was told that I had a very high risk of suddenly dying. And I needed a defibrillator um, in order to make sure that if my heart went into sudden death, which is the actual medical term, that. <laughs> That, uh, that I would, I would get shocked and, um, and, uh, and I would be saved. And so I was someone who thought that open source software was cool and pretty useful. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was confronted with the idea that I had to get proprietary software literally sewn into my body and screwed into my heart. And it was such a wake-up moment for me because everything that I had thought previously about the software that I relied on and my whole relationship with software changed. And when Karen told me that she had to get this device installed in her body, we were already friends at that point. We didn't work together uh, really yet uh, at Conservancy, but we were working together elsewhere and we're friends. And Karen asked me what I thought about all this and it really changed my perspective as well because I hadn't considered in that golden age of free software, that there might be tougher choices that people would have to make. I really couldn't imagine until Karen told me about this that you might end up in a situation as she just described where you have to choose between your own personal safety and avoiding proprietary software. Karen made the right choice obviously because she chose her safety and health over the fact that she now has proprietary software in her body. Well, but, I might add that I have never needed to be shocked. I've only been shocked inappropriately. Inappropriately? 
<laughs> Wait, what does inappropriately mean? I have only been given unnecessary treatment by my defibrillator. So there have been times where um, the defibrillator was calibrated wrong or it thought that my heart was doing something that, uh, that was dangerous when it was not. So for example, when I was pregnant, about 25% of all pregnant women have uh, palpitations. It's super common. I see a woman nodding. Um, and uh, when that happens, you, you know, if, if you were to go to the doctor, they would say, oh, palpitations are really common, don't worry about it. But for me, because I had a defibrillator, my device thought that I was in a dangerous rhythm and it shocked me. And multiple times. And the only way for me to deal with it was for me to take drugs to slow my heart rate down so much that I had a hard time walking up a flight of stairs. Well, what, why didn't you fix the firmware and update it? Exactly. And so it was, it was just such, a, it was, it was such an eye-opening moment because when I first thought I needed, when I first got the defibrillator and was first prescribed to get one, I thought that the real issue was transparency. I thought that the problem was that I couldn't see the source code in my own body and that, that was upsetting in a very um, ideological way. But when the unnecessary shocks happened simply because I was pregnant, I realized that it was something else entirely, right? The medical device manufacturers have no interest in pregnant women being shocked. None. That is the last thing they want is for pregnant ladies getting shocked, I promise you. But when you think about it, only 15% of defibrillators go to people under the age of 65. Fewer than half of all people who get defibrillators are women. So the set of people who are pregnant with defibrillators is tiny. And it's a temporary condition. And I was able to take drugs to deal with it. And so the, it, it, it made me realize that, you know, that I was in a situation that the device manufacturers hadn't really anticipated and weren't prepared to deal with. And it made me realize that there are all of these other situations that we may have where the manufacturers of our technology have not anticipated the use cases that, that we'll have. And my defibrillator in particular is, uh, is potentially going to last me another 15 years. And anticipating what could happen to our technology generally over that long time span, it's mind-boggling. And this is also right around the time that we began to have uh, handheld mobile computing devices. I hate calling them smartphones because they're actually more powerful computers than my first three or four computers, uh, even this one was. That's the original HTC, tree, HTC Dream, the Android uh, G1, which was the first Android phone. And initially... Ooh, ooh, raise your hand if you had one. Who had a G1? Okay, only like a quarter, of, like less than a quarter of the audience. Yeah, we, we, uh, Karen and I stopped using our G1 phones in 2010, or 2011, no, it was a lot later than that. 20, it was, it was I, 2012 for me. 2012, yeah. So, uh, and, and there were various reasons we kept using this phone, um, one of which was that it, it was only a step, one step in the wrong direction. So, in some sense, it was a step in the right direction, because at the time, the common handheld computer was the iPhone, which was completely proprietary software, completely locked down, completely unfriendly to software freedom. This phone, this device, was somewhat friendly to software freedom. It ran Linux. It had a kernel that was free software. It had Android, most, most of which was released as free software. And in fact, we were able to upgrade the firmwares with our own builds on these devices and got the thing working, generally speaking, with the only proprietary software being 
the baseband firmware to talk to the mobile phone network. Now this means the device did not work as directed by the manufacturer. Specifically, there were a number of different proprietary software applications that were supposed to run on this device to make it more useful that did not run when you installed an alternative firmware with 100% or 99% free software. You couldn't do the Google Maps app. You couldn't do email. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a functional email app at first. Uh, someone wrote, eventually uh, wrote one that was free software. But all of the main applications you were expected to use were proprietary. But that wasn't so bad either, because the web browser worked. And in fact, I often use this particular device to look at Google Maps, because in those days, Google Maps didn't actually really require JavaScript. You could load a static image of a map, and it gave you just a regular image that displayed fine in a web browser. So what happens now? Well, <laughs> eventually, I started getting this page when I tried to use Google Maps. So I, I think it's a pretty mean joke. Um, Basically, it says, if you don't want to run proprietary software, your life is empty. Because what it's trying to do is install a proprietary software application written in JavaScript into your browser and run it so that you can view the map. And we checked this just yesterday. Even today, if you try to load Google Maps without JavaScript enabled in your browser, this is the screen that you see. You, don't, you can't use Google Maps if you're not willing to install proprietary software. Not anymore, anyway. And this isn't limited to Google Maps. This is pretty much a very wide range of applications. So something strange that happened, and something that I feel that many software freedom activists missed until it was too late, was that slowly but surely, many of the applications that we wanted to use to get daily work done moved from being desktop applications and those sorts of things to being applications that ran in the browser. Now, a lot of people tend to think, well, if it runs in the browser, it's not really a program that I'm running. But of course, all of you in the audience know well that a JavaScript program is just a piece of software that gets downloaded into your computer and run immediately in your browser. It's not that different from typing apt-get install something. It just all happens quickly and automatically for you. So at Conservancy, we worry about this problem a lot. And we had a rule at Conservancy that said, well, employees are not required to use proprietary software. We, we permit employees at Conservancy to use proprietary software if they want to, if they feel it helps them get their jobs done. But we never wanted to mandate it. So I had this weird problem because I was handling, we're a small organization, I was handling the banking for Software Freedom Conservancy. Um, so I go to our bank's website, and I'm greeted mostly by this bizarre stock photo of these two people at their at their kitchen staring at me. But when I go to try to click on that little sign in there, uh, if I have no script on, which you'll see I have on up in the top-hand corner, which is a uh, plug-in for Firefox that will ban all JavaScript that attempts to run in the browser, the sign-in button doesn't even work. I can't even log into our bank's website. Now, of course, under this wonderful rule that we have at Conservancy, I could tell Karen, well, Karen, I'm not going to use this software, because it's proprietary. I don't want to install it in my browser. Then my entire job would probably be going to the bank every day and doing all our banking transactions, because it would probably take a better part of every day to do our banking transactions. So I, 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 eventually, I decided it was going to be OK 
I just have to install some proprietary software. And that's where the slippery slope begins. So I pull down no script to see what JavaScript is there. And look at all this proprietary JavaScript that it wants me to install just to log into the bank. Um, in fact, you can't even see the bank's JavaScript because it's scrolling there down at the bottom off the screen. Um, now, it does turn out if you just allow the bank's JavaScript, it will work. You don't have to actually uh, use you know, Google, a Google APIs to log into the bank. That's, I think, a good thing. But it's a pretty disturbing experience. So now uh, I have a job at the premier free software organization in the world, probably the only organization in the world that tells people they don't have to run proprietary software for their job. But I either do that, go to the bank every day all day, or I run proprietary software every day for my job. And this is true for so many things. If you're functional in the world, if you need to take care of things for yourself, if you need to book a flight, if you need to do anything via the web, you hit the same situation. And I would say this is the cruel reality of Firefox. Firefox is so exciting in that it, it's, the, it's the, the free software that a lot of people experience first. It brought free software to millions of people, but it's also a proprietary software delivery vehicle. In fact, I would venture to say that, that Firefox is the largest and most ubiquitous proprietary software delivery engine in the world today. It's ironic, but sadly true. On the other hand... And it's, and it's invisible to many yeah. people. Most people. The reason why it's so insidious is that people don't know that this is happening, and they don't know they're making these choices. And so we're up here giving our secret confessions of all the proprietary software we use, but for most people, they don't even know that they're installing software when they're using the web. Now, we're not up here to tell everyone that you're horrible people for installing all this proprietary JavaScript. That's why I started out by telling you at least one story, which is one story of many. Um, people know that I fly a lot, and I've also installed Delta's uh, uh, proprietary software many times to change my seat. Uh, we're not trying to tell people, as, as historically, some software freedom activists have, have said, well, you should feel bad about doing this. You should avoid doing this, and if you do it, you've made a mistake. And then at the same time, some free software activists will happily rely on a culture where other people are using proprietary software on their behalf. And we were in that camp originally, like, for, originally when we first started, or at least for me, when I first started trying to use only free and open source software to the extent that I could accepting my, um, my defibrillator software, um, I, I, I fell into the same camp. I would, I would sort of let other people use proprietary software around me because it made it so much easier for me. I would try to outsource my proprietary software usage because it was so much easier to do that. The classic example of this is, is everybody at a conference like this wandering away at the end of the day looking for a place to go to dinner. And Karen and I would wander along, and we'd not know where we were going. Uh, Karen usually uh, uh, would, would be prepared and have a paper map that she would be quickly trying to find some restaurant on. And we'd sort of wait around until somebody volunteered to take out their proprietary mobile device and start Google Maps and start looking for restaurants. And we'd just sort of follow behind them, and they led the way. Now, th this, this or matter worse, of... Or worse, where are you going for dinner? <laughs> Might we follow? <laughs> this we can't find a taxi. Are you calling a ride share? You know, you're calling a, a Uber or Lyft or whatever? Yeah, it was really bad. And, and, and the, the, the idea that, that 
we're, we were somehow better as software freedom activists because we stood around and waited for other people to use proprietary software on our behalf, uh, eventually became a farce from our point of view. Uh, I think it's. I think it's really. If if you believe as as, as Karen and I do that software uh, proprietary software is harmful, that taking people's rights to copy, share, modify, improve the software is a bad thing to do to them, I don't want to encourage anybody to do that on my behalf or their own. So I don't want to be in a situation where someone feels they're helping me by doing something that I think they shouldn't have to do. Yeah, we're software freedom activists. We want to help people use more software freedom and less proprietary software. It is absolutely wrong for us to ask other people to use proprietary software for us. And we realized that we needed to extrapolate that on an organizational level. So now, with Software Freedom Conservancy, if there is a choice between making somebody else have to use proprietary software to interact with us, or us having to use the proprietary software, we will use the proprietary software because we are supporting other people in their endeavors to achieve software freedom. So this maps thing is an interesting one. Um, these are the two devices that Karen and I have respectively been using to navigate around Brussels this year. Um, the map is Karen's. Should we make, unless people get, oh, you already said. I was going to say, let's let people guess. Uh, well, I, but, we, I've, right. already, I've already pointed out that you carry a map. The map is Karen's. The, the tablet is mine. So the story of this tablet is that it, I got a package that I wasn't expecting in the mail one day. And it was from Lenovo. And it turned out that it was a tablet that my father had bought me without telling me. Now, my father is a software developer, and he knows that I'm a software freedom activist. And I wondered why he bought me this tablet. It turns out it, it was a relatively benign desire. He wanted to chat with me on Google Hangouts. And it's a reasonable thing for a parent to ask. I am sure plenty of people in this room have had the situation where a relative wanted you to be on Facebook or be on Google Hangouts, or be on some mechanism that they use every day to communicate that's proprietary software, and you felt a tremendous amount of social pressure to use it. So I opened the laptop, and I installed the Google Hangouts app, and I loaded it, and turned out I can't use Google Hangouts unless I have a Google account. So I created a Google account under a fake name, which I probably violated the terms of service, and they're terminating my contract right now, my account right now. Um, and I was able to use Google Hangouts to chat with my dad. So initially, I was using the device only for that. But the thing about these kinds of proprietary software technologies is they are convenient, and they are insidious. I have thought a lot about various different uh, sayings that I know about convenience. Uh, I think the one I like the best is an adaptation of uh, what uh, one, of the, one of the original um, people in the United States said about people who want, who will sacrifice freedom for security deserve neither. I think it's more about people who will sacrifice software freedom for convenience probably deserve neither. At least that's how I feel about about myself. But on the other hand, I get a lot of convenience by using this device. Slowly but surely, I found myself, well, all the licenses are already agreed to. It's not like I'm entering new licensing agreements to launch apps on this thing that are already there. So I started carrying it just when I traveled. And I started using the maps just when I traveled. And then suddenly there were more apps there, and I was using it more. It's in my bag back there right now. 
I'm not particularly proud of that. And it's, uh, it, there was the first conference uh, that I brought it to, I was like surreptitiously making sure that I'd, I'd hidden it before I got too close to the venue. Because I thought, well, if people see Bradley Kuhn using a proprietary Android tablet, like that's like the end of the world. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world. That's why I'm up here confessing that I use it. Because all of you have made choices like this. And even the strongest among us, which I think I would count Karen and I among those, are falling into these traps. It's not easy. So, uh, so for me, I had this really particular moment where um, my father, uh, who had the same heart condition that I had, um, had, uh, had collapsed and he was in the hospital. And it was the middle of the night, and uh, my mother called and said, get to the hospital right away. And the whole time that I drove in a rental car to the hospital, I thought, am I going to miss my father? because I don't have mapping software. Like, because I'm relying on paper maps, if I make a wrong turn, I'm gonna miss that. And is that the right choice, right? These choices are real, there are real outcomes. It's not these esoteric questions. So despite that very emotional and deeply frightening, terrifying moment for me, um, I still have resisted using, the, um, using, using the, that, that level of proprietary software, so I'm still, um, I've still got these maps, but uh, you, know, you have to reevaluate these choices all the time, and you have to make them carefully and, and thoughtfully, and none of these choices are easy. And so while I have resisted on my, on my, for, for, for location, I, my confession is that I, I recently got a new laptop, it's got proprietary firmware on it. This, this arrow is supposed to point to my laptop, which is, which is over but here. But it's plugged in, so we but can't move it further. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, had, um, I did have a freer laptop. I had an X200, and it was having suspend issues. And I had a hard drive failure, and then I had failure of my backup hard drive. And I lost a lot of time, and it was extremely stressful. And so uh, this happened. Um, last month, I guess, or uh, yeah, like December, five weeks ago. Yeah. And so I, um, I, I, I got this laptop. Um, I'm reevaluating, right? Because just because you, just because you get the, the proprietary device, just because you, you take a step away from software freedom doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. It doesn't mean that that's the choice forever. Um, so, you know, just because you have french fries for lunch doesn't mean you have to eat fried food at every meal. Um, but, uh, but so that's, that's one of my confessions, is my, my laptop. So both of us still use phones that are, we are, are old, much older than probably most of the mobile devices that you all use. Uh, the HTC Dream, as it turns out, does not work in the United States anymore. Uh, they have deprecated the, uh, the frequencies that it could talk. And so slowly but surely it would degrade, and there's a, a law in the United States that you, everything has to degrade to base cellular you know, 1G technology. So 1G works, but it means the call drops constantly. And when Karen and I talk to each other on two HTC Dreams at 1G, um, th that is like talking on a cell phone in the 1980s, right? I mean, that was the experience. So eventually I, I upgraded to a phone that was two years newer than the HTC Dream, the Nexus One, running uh, uh, one of the, the original builds from the Replicant project, which seeks to create 100% free software firmwares. Um, Karen is running this phone. Well, so I switched to a later Replicant phone, an S3, but then in New York, uh, 3G is deprecated. So I, couldn't, I just couldn't keep up. I was great when I traveled, especially if I was in Europe. The phone was awesome, but 
when I was home, which was most of the time, it was totally useless. I basically had no phone, even though I had a phone. So, uh, so now I'm running uh, Lineage OS, um, and it has its, you know, everything has its ups and downs, right? So that's where we are with that. So what we have observed is this fundamental paradox in how things have gone in software. I come to FOSDEM every year. It is more people than ever. Please be careful in K today. Uh, my colleague Brett and I got trapped in K for an hour last year because you couldn't move. So be careful walking through K. That's how many people are here. That's how many people are excited about software freedom. And in fact, I think it's the case that every single day there is more free software code in the world than ever in history. Yet every single day, Karen and I discover it's a little bit incrementally more difficult to get through the day and operate in industrialized operate in our normal work in industrialized society without using proprietary software. It's twofold. It means that our all of our devices are less accessible than they ever were before. We are less in control of our own equipment than ever before. It is harder to run a completely free stack of software on anything anymore. It takes so much work and so much thought, um, and which is worth doing, but it is in, in, incredibly difficult. And then on the, on the other hand, um, we, we, we also have these security problems where if we don't have the ability to replace the software on our devices, then, um, then we will never be able to fix problems when they arise. We will be reliant on companies to first admit that they have a problem and then to fix those problems. And that is completely unacceptable. And it's completely strange that with all this free software getting written, why does this paradox exist? Why is there more proprietary software than ever? Well, generally, there's more software than there has ever been in history. And part of what is happening is the focus of what free software is getting written is much narrower than the entire space of software. So there are cases of applications, of problem areas, where virtually no one is working on free software replacements for the existing proprietary technology. And there are other places where we have a dozen different free software projects all trying to solve the same problem. So the question is, how do we make the right choices in that particular world, in that particular situation? And how do we make the right choices about what we ourselves use? It's so difficult. These are questions that come up every day. Every day, Bradley and I agonize over the proprietary software that we're using. We talk about it almost every day. We have had a dialogue about this for years. It started when we were trying to avoid proprietary software, and so, uh, and so we would be out somewhere trying, to get, you know, trying to, to, to get from point A to point B, and one of us was lost, we would call the other, and the other would use proprietary software via the web to help the other one navigate. And it was helpful to have that support, but it was sort of silly also at the same time because it's trading one proprietary software usage for another. But on the other hand, not having those GPS systems on our, on, you know, with us, not having that tracking technology, um, not having all of that enabled is, is, is really valuable too. And none of these questions are easy. They only become easy if you're not trying to take care of a lot of administrative stuff for yourself. Right? And, and admittedly, there's a complexity here, which we haven't spent too much time talking about, that I want to briefly mention, which is that these software systems are mixes of software and proprietary data aggregated, usually in a large corporation. That's the problem with Facebook, with many of the Google services. But 
I tend to believe and still believe that software freedom is a necessary, even if not sufficient condition to assure that we handle all of these problems. It's not like if every proprietary software company on the planet were to release all their code tomorrow that we'd solve every problem of centralization, every problem of security, every problem of data privacy in computing. But we would have taken the first step, the first most important step, to get towards that. A great example is Gmail, which is probably the most popular email client on the planet today. And if Gmail were released tomorrow as free software, it's very likely that people could quickly hook that back up to make the email system truly distributed again instead of centralized into a few very small email providers. It's centralized because the client is centralized, not because the server needs to be centralized, because we solved that particular problem a long time ago. The most important thing is to keep thinking about these issues when you encounter them, to make really mindful choices about the technology you're choosing, and when we know, of course, you're all going to sometimes choose proprietary software. After all, we sometimes do. But we hope that we can impart a certain amount of mindfulness. Perhaps you will not be as obsessed as we are. We wouldn't really expect that. But a certain amount of mindfulness could help everyone, I think. And if we all get a little bit out of our comfort zones and take one more step towards software freedom, this is the next slide. Um, yeah. uh, if we all make those small choices en masse, we can really make a difference. You know, it, it's, a, it's a completely different thing if we all are pushing a little bit more towards freedom. And if you could, oh, let's skip two slides. Um, if you could spend time explaining the problem to others, spend time pointing out why choosing proprietary software is not ideal, as best you can, especially to those that aren't in the software industry, people who don't know as much about software freedom, that can go a long way. Ask people to take it seriously. Uh, I know Karen does not like this analogy, but I became a vegetarian at a time in the early 1990s when it was considered very, very strange to do so, at least in the United States. Uh, in fact, I was on the university meal plan and they couldn't provide meals for me, so I had to wait one year until I could leave the meal plan to become a vegetarian. The world doesn't operate that way anymore. I go into almost any restaurant in the world and there's at least one item on the menu these days that does not have uh, meat or fish or poultry in it. Uh, but it wasn't always like that. And it got better because people who weren't vegetarians were willing to say, well, we should be accommodating to people who are making that kind of moral choice. As people become more um, familiar with the dangers of data aggregation and the surveillance that we've built in our technology, it's more important now than ever to tie the software freedom issues into that narrative. Um, as Bradley said before, it's, uh, those issues are all uh, completely interwoven and inseparable. And so uh, we need to be clear and, um, and very... Um, we need, we need to really put our foot down about software freedom and talk about it and explain to people why it's so important. And this, this isn't about making all of us feel bad. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my life feeling bad when I would use proprietary software. I don't think that helps anybody. You don't need to feel paralyzed from the shame of, well, gee, I couldn't find a free software solution, so I just used proprietary software. Um, my confession is that I still feel ashamed. Every time I use any proprietary software, I feel deeply ashamed. I feel so ashamed to have this laptop in front of you at FOSDEM. It's just, this is, and this is why we proposed this talk, because these are such hard choices, and if 
those of us who are working at the charities that are dedicated to software freedom have to make these hard choices, then we have a really big problem. But we can't let these kinds of problems lead us to do nothing. I, I think we're at this moment where proprietary software is more common than free software again, at least at the end user level, at least at the application level. It's really disturbing, and there aren't a lot of people working on the problem, but it's actually relatively easy to start working on the problem. It's actually relatively easy to take some action, because free software succeeded because of hosts and hosts of little actions that people took. One of the simplest things you can do is try to give some of your developer time to projects that are not necessarily what companies are willing to pay for, but what seems to be the most important free software job to get done. Very few people work on Android apps that are GPL'd and available on the App Store under free licenses. There are some, but the majority are not. There are very few people who work on full websites that are 100% free software with all free JavaScript. You can do these things. It's unlikely that you'll find tons of funding to do them, but remember that most of the key free software programs, like GCC and Linux, that we rely on every day now, were initially written by volunteers who were working on nights and weekends. They weren't funded by big companies in those days. Developers made choices to prioritize their time because in the late 80s and early 90s, writing a compiler and a kernel was the most important job that needed to get done for software freedom. That's not the most important job anymore. So taking your time to focus on those kinds of jobs is a way to get forward. Asking, I'm sorry, asking questions at work is a really great way of engaging with this. Um, being, it's a very non-confrontational way to ask if you're working at an organization, if you're working at a company developing software, just asking about the consideration of the business case for including copyleft at software. A lot of companies are uh, unnecessarily uh, veering towards um, lax permissive licensing even when a copyleft license might make more sense simply because of company policy. And asking questions about whether that makes the most sense can really raise awareness and cause a change in a very non-confrontational way. And if you have a little bit more gumption, I can tell you a story about a developer. Uh, I believe he is here at FOSM. I'm not going to name him, but if you want me to introduce, me, introduce him later, I will. He went to his employer. He was assigned to work on a, a free software project under a CoffeeLeft license, but he made the decision that that wasn't the highest priority project for software freedom. He found another project that he felt was much more important, much more strategic to the future of free software and data privacy. And he sent an email to his boss and said, I think the company should be focusing on this project. I've decided starting tomorrow to switch what I'm working on. I'm going to go ahead and do that. Let me know if there's any problem. He doesn't work at that company anymore. <laughs> but he found a way to fund his work to continue working on that other project. Now that takes a tremendous amount of bravery and he took a tremendous amount of risk to do that. It's not what everyone can do. But I hope you'll take his story as an inspiration of being willing to do at least the little bit you can to try and convince your companies, your employers, other people in the community that there are, might be bigger priorities out there for software freedom that we need to be working on. Support each other because I tell you when my laptop failed and I lost my backup hard drive. That was bleak. That was so sad. And 
At moments like that, you just want to throw in the towel, you just want to give up. In order to stick with software freedom as much as possible, you have to make choices that sometimes make you a little bit antisocial, right? I'm often turning up late to things because I'm lost. <laughs> I, I turn down video chats, I turn down a lot of other opportunities for socializing because they involve proprietary software, and it's hard. And the only way we can overcome this is, uh, is by helping each other, by talking honestly about the proprietary software we're using, and by making sure that we help each other to use less of it. And so we at the Software Freedom Conservancy, at least, in coming to terms with the proprietary software we're using and being honest about it, our job is to support software freedom. So we feel you, and we've got your back. So you can talk to us about it, because we know how painful it is, and we're hoping that it's going to get better. So one final thing that we want to tell you about is that uh, we did something I, I've never seen anybody do with the talk before. Uh, we recorded all of our prep meetings in designing this talk. So all of the stories that were left on the cutting room floor of all the times that I and Karen have used proprietary software, which might be, have some, 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 some interest to, to some folks, and generally how we work together and design this talk to try to communicate this message to you. We've recorded that. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be releasing uh, those as podcasts uh, on our podcast, which is called Free as in Freedom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So if you want more of this, you can feel free to listen to that. And I think we have five minutes left for questions if you'd like to ask some. There's a mic here that will need to be run to you wherever you are. <laughs> While we wait for him to take the microphone, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this talk and thank you for caring about software freedom. We really appreciate you. So were you happy with how it came out, Bradley? Well, I have a bunch of notes of things that we cut. So I wanted to go through things we cut and why we cut them. Although, uh, yeah, so when we were prepping for the talk, um, I kind of had this weird thing where uh, I, I basically didn't want to give it. Do you remember the day before when we were prepping? I do. I'm not sure how much I should say here. Uh, you can say whatever you want. It's <laughs> fine. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, so, so we went into, like, we, 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 we were in a hotel room uh, prepping for it. And like, I basically gave up and didn't want to do it. And then there was all this construction noise. And I was like, I can't think with all the construction noise. There was construction noise in my hotel room. And there was construction Bradley noise in your hotel kept room. Saying, kept saying, just do it without me. I did say that. <laughs> that's true. Uh, and uh, so I, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because uh, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, it's difficult for us, just like it's difficult for anybody else to give a talk. And it was a lot of pressure. This was, uh, like I told people in my immediate family, I was like, well, I'm keynoting the biggest conference in my field uh, next week or in a few weeks and all that sort of thing. And that was kind of a lot of pressure because it is the biggest conference in our field. And we were giving the opening keynote for it, which is a pretty big yes. professional thing. I didn't sleep at all the night before. And I thought it was because I was really nervous. So I like started to meditate to calm down. And I realized that it wasn't that I was nervous, although I was a little nervous. It was that I was so excited I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep the entire night because I was so excited for that talk because it was so important to me. 
Well, I wasn't nervous. I mean, I wasn't excited. I was just plain nervous. And I was kind of freaking out the day before. So we were in this hotel room and uh, we don't get much sleep at conferences. So uh, there was a, there was two double beds and I laid down in one of the beds and Karen was like, you're not going to sleep. We're supposed to be prepping for our talk. And I'm like, I'm not going to sleep for that long. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you can't sleep. We have to do this. And then eventually I was like, I'm just doing this. I'm at least doing the prep without you. I'm making the slides. I just, we're going to, we're going to get this done. Yeah. And I heard gonna, Karen saying like various things she was putting on slides while I was kind of asleep for a while there. And so, and that's why the slides are actually on Karen's template, not mine. People know my template pretty well who listened to us. Probably if you watch the video, you saw that that's Karen's template for slides. Uh, and that's why they're Karen's template. Cause I didn't want to do anything like, I want to give up, like basically. I think but, I think it's in part because you were nervous, and in part because we were exhausted because we had just been to the nice comp Australia, and we had tons of work in the meantime. And it's so frustrating because, you know, for a talk like this, you want to have a lot of time to prepare and discuss. And you know, we took some time, as you know, because we recorded those episodes, but not the kind of big prep that you and I would really like to do, but we have so much work that we just can't make the time to do it. Fortunately, with this talk, our lives are the prep for the talk. Yeah, you kept telling me that. Uh, it wasn't helping at the time. <laughs> I know, that's what you said. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I, mean, I, so I was more nervous than Karen was. But I, the reason I wanted to cover that part is that people don't realize, I think, when they hear a talk by people that they know and that are well-known in the community like we are, they don't realize that, that we're just like anybody else. We're going to be nervous about speaking. And I, I kept saying this uh, to both you and Tom Marble about how the number of people was so much larger. It makes a big difference. Giving I, I, I've given so many talks to a room full of 110 people or less, right? I, I can stand up in front of 100 people and give a talk on basically any topic of which I'm reasonably informed with basically no prep, and it will be a mediocre talk uh, or better. And... It's different when there's 500 people, 1,000 people, or potentially 3,000 people. We had probably maybe 1,000 people in the room for the talk. Yeah, I think we like had that. more than 1,000 people, and that's pretty intimidating. I think the most I've ever spoken to that were really sitting there was maybe 3,000. Yeah. So that was there was like one venue that I did where it was closer to 10,000, but it, it was like in an expo floor, and people were walking around, that's and there was loud really noises. It was horrible, and there was a leak in the ceiling. And so there was a water, there was water dripping like a foot from my computer. It was really stressful. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. Well, one, <laughs> that reminds me of the time. Do you remember the time we were at Oscon and the nonprofit uh, booths were there and they kept setting up a stage for Tim O'Reilly to like present on the trade flow, sh- trade show floor right next to the nonprofit. So you, the nonprofits couldn't talk to anybody because all you could hear is Tim O'Reilly's booming voice through the whole nonprofit pavilion while he was giving the stupid talk. Do you remember that year? I do remember that, but I wasn't really listening to his talk, so I don't know if it was Well, stupid. we couldn't hear I'm why. I was trying not to listen. Stupid. I was trying to greet people in our booth. But that was like, that's how much Tim O'Reilly hates nonprofits. He's like, oh, I'll make a nonprofit pavilion, but I'm going to oh, set up my stage. Mine. Yeah, no. Tim O'Reilly's not a friend of charities. Come on. I know, but we don't... Well, I don't know what I know, but I don't think it's... <laughs> I, I I don't want to spend our, our, our listeners' time talking negatively about... Anyway, anyone. but yeah, I, I think that whole trade show floor... But we can criticize Tim O'Reilly's stance on free software that anytime too, you but want. That too. We can um, definitely do that. Uh, but yeah, and, and his, uh, his... So yeah, so anyway, well, so it's... 
all this is to say we were both very nervous for this talk and it probably shows um but i i think i'm pleased with how it came out um you know it was just it's a disheartening talk to have to give and so i think that was part of it too was that during the the build up for this talk is that are we really at the point where we have to give this talk and the answer is a thousand times yes and that's just so upsetting on its own well you had you had a you had a feedback to ourselves almost right afterwards that you felt we we screwed up which was you had said right. i don't know if you remember what you said but i'll tell you what you said cuz i remember um, I wrote it down. That's why I know. Um, but you had said, uh, you told me we left out too much of our actual usage of free software. That's what you had said. Do you want to expand yeah. on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't think we screwed up per se, but we focused a lot on our confessions, which was the topic of our talk. But we go through great lengths in our lives to use free software. And so we didn't like list all the ways in which we are still alienating friends and family, which we're still spending a lot more time, um, you know, doing whatever thing that we were going to do because we do those things in order to use more free software. We don't, we didn't like go through an exhaustive list or, or, or even just nod to it. And so I felt like maybe people felt like we, I was worried at the time that people had felt like we were saying we had just given up. And so the, the, the dream of software freedom is completely dead and we're not even trying anymore. But it turns out that based on the feedback we got, I don't think anybody heard the talk that way. Yeah. I mean, I held up my phone and pointed out that I was still using this old phone. Um, we, you talked about how you were using an older phone that was almost completely free software still, except for the baseband firmware. Um, I pointed out my X200 that I was still using, which was sitting right there. So I felt like we, I felt like we covered enough of that, but I, I, I don't know how, maybe we could have done a better balance. Um, I also think we left out a lot of proprietary stuff that people have heard in the last few episodes. We left out a lot of our proprietary usage that we could have talked about. I, I just, mm-hmm. it was more cut for time than anything else. Um, I was kind of glad, for example, we left out the Netflix thing, the fact that I use Netflix client. Um, and I was glad to leave that out because I didn't want, I didn't really want to have that conversation in as wide a forum. I mean, obviously, I, I talked about it on a couple episodes ago, so people know it who listen to our, our podcast here. But I didn't really want I, – I was glad we decided to leave that out because I think it would have been harder for me to kind of interact with the community. Um, like having, having, having to explain in the talk, in the time frame we had in the talk, using that and like what the implications are and how it relates to DRM and all that sort of thing. And the other, the other issue is, is that, is that the – and this might have been interesting to cover. I don't think I think it would have to be a talk to itself, but it would be interesting to cover sort of the the choice. You actually now this is something we didn't even talk about in the other podcast, but actually now you have to choose between what I would call like infractional copyright infringement, meaning infraction. But there's an infraction misdemeanor felony, like infractional copyright infringement versus living with a DRM based proprietary software system, right? Because you can't watch if you wanted to watch a particular show. You either have to infringe copyright to get it, generally speaking, or you have to agree to DRM and proprietary software. So I, that, that, I actually think maybe a follow-up talk might be an interesting talk about that, about how if you want to consume popular certain popular culture now, now that many shows are only available in streaming, you have to make that choice. You either infringe copyright by downloading it uh, in a copyright-infringing way, or you have to watch it with DRM and with proprietary software. See, I would argue, and this is sort of where I split the baby, is that I would argue that if you paid for the service where you could watch it in a non-infringing way, but then you download it to watch it, um, which would otherwise be infringing, that it's a 
equivalent to time shifting. Well, so the only problem with that and is that, the way that, to download that, I mean, is usually torrents, I mean, right? Time problem- shifting is is for, for, for it's it's a reference to the old VCR analysis. It's a fair use argument that says that if I have the ability to watch it today, I can record it, put it on a different medium, and watch it tomorrow, and that's still the same. It's it's it's, it's considered fair use under copyright law. Right, and that's actually how I watch Jeopardy. So I have a video capture card. Um, Jeopardy comes in uh, with Jeopardy is a sorry for people outside the U.S. Jeopardy is a game show in the United States, uh, a, a popular, long-running game show. And I, I, I time shift that by using a video, a free software-driven video capture card, which receives the HDTV signal and records it. So I'm actually doing that. That's not copyright infringing because I'm getting it over the air and I'm, I'm time shifting it. So in that case, I am, but there's lots of things that aren't broadcast. So, so that was one thing that I think it was, um, it was pretty right. Uh, and and for me, saying like I I basically pay for uh, Netflix and Hulu and then try to avoid watching them. Right. So a couple. I just want to go mention a couple of other things. Um, or you know, watch it in a different. Anyway, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I I, I wanted to mention a couple other things. So so one of the other things is I, I I realized I listened to one of the episodes we released and realized I made reference to the. Dead Kennedy's phrase, give me convenience or give me death. Um, if you lo- notice in the talk, I didn't use that in the talk. I, I tried to use, I think it actually didn't come out that well, but I tried to use the uh, Ben Franklin quote, which was the, uh, which was the um, uh, you know, people who, uh, Ben Franklin quote, I think, or whoever it was, uh, said, um, people who uh, want to sacrifice uh, freedom for security deserve neither. And I said, you know, people want to sacrifice you know, freedom for um, convenience deserve neither. Um, and I, I felt that was better. I, I mean, I, I think one of the problems with the, the give, I mean, give me death is just such a, I, I really try hard these days to not exaggerate the importance of free software. Well, I think it's an important cause. It, it is all, only in your case, Karen, is it a life or death cause or your case or people in your situation? Is it a life or death cause for most people? Software freedom isn't a life or death issue. Uh, and so I, I don't like to, to make that. I realized when we were prepping that that when I wasn't freaking out when we were prepping that that was something that probably I shouldn't use. I, and I think the problem was I hadn't really prepped the other analogy well enough and then it didn't come off well. Yeah. And then the, the, the same thing is I decided after recording that episode, I decided not to use the term Shabbos Goy um, because while I did do that in our prep, um, I decided I was similarly uncomfortable with using that term because I didn't want anyone to construe it as if I was insulting anybody's faith choices. Yeah, uh, anybody's religious choices. So I, I just, you know, I just decided it was better not to go there. Yeah, and um, and the other thing we decided to do right before the talk. Uh, so so if you, for those who weren't at the conference, uh, our talk was followed by a talk by Mitchell Baker from the Mozilla Foundation, a Mozilla Corporation, actually, because um, she works for the for-profit arm. Uh, and we made a decision to actually be pretty hard on all the browser engines because they're basically a delivery platform for running proprietary software. And that while the browsers are hundred percent free software, most JavaScript in the world is proprietary. So they're really an engine for this proprietary technology, uh, even though they're free. Uh, and I, I, uh, Karen and I actually debated a lot whether to be really strong on that initially. And we decided to be strong on that because I, I, I really felt that especially given Mozilla's stance on DRM and other positions that Mozilla take, and I didn't really have too much of a, problem giving them a hard time about being a proprietary software engine or a, an engine for running proprietary software, I should say, primarily. Yeah, I think I called them in our talk a proprietary software. De- I think I called the fire. I think I called the browser a, fi- a proprietary software delivery engine. Yeah. 
The I think we called it yeah. that. I think we decided on the phrase right before the talk. Karen and I. This is the other thing that happens that people don't realize. Like Karen and I were sitting there actually debating what phrase to use for that. Just minutes before the talk, we were going back and forth. Like, can we call it a this? Can we call it a that? And, and I actually think we settled on the the largest proprietary software delivery engine in the world, or something like that. Um, I think I'm not sure. I think we, we didn't quite agree. And so I recall <laughs> I used my phrasing and then you doubled down with your phrasing. And in any event, it got applause. Yeah. That's when you true. said it, though, not when I said it. So your formulation was surely better. Well, I, you know, I, I'm always, I always want to say <laughs> it more was more dramatic. Than, yeah. So, and, uh, and we did find uh, people will note that we found the, the, the JavaScript. It was in the previous show notes from a couple episodes ago, but. Uh, we did find the, 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 in fact, the JavaScript page does come up. Uh, one of the yeah, last was, things, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I thought you were talking about something else. So, yeah. Uh, so, and, and the last it. thing we, we really got a lot of negative feedback on, I think, was the, the map, using the, the maps example so heavily. Um, we sort of decided that, uh, the day before because, uh, probably because we were traveling and, uh, therefore that was the proprietary software. Certainly I was using the most in the days leading up to the talk. Uh, a lot of people came up and said OpenStreetMaps can do this. Uh, there's been a lot of debate I think people had about... Yeah, but then you still have the proprietary firmware that you need for the GPS firmware. So it, it, everyone who I spoke to, we dispensed of that conversation very quickly. Yeah, and and the OpenStreetMap applications are, are, are not... The software is not as good. Uh, I actually had an argument uh, since my talk with someone about in the same nature of saying Google won't release the source code to the Maps software... And I said, well, it's because of the data. And I was like, well, no, if they release the map software, the software for doing everything, we could just hook in the OpenStreetMap data to it. Like, that's a free software project someone could do uh, if the software were free. But it's never going to be free because they want to integrate advertising. And so it's never going to be free software because uh, they need the DRM style controls to make sure the advertising is theirs. So it's I, I still stand by that it was a good example. And actually, somebody who is a... Uh, serious free software person came up to me, uh, and I think you had this experience too, Karen, with a few people, uh, but somebody who was a hardcore free software person came up to me and said that they were so glad we gave the talk because they had been so, uh, felt so ashamed of using the proprietary software that did specifically Google Maps and was glad that we did that to, to make people feel less ashamed. Um, I'm still waiting yeah. for the- I did. He- yeah, I did hear that. Um, I-, I was going to just tell my follow-up about what happened the night after the talk. but were you moving on or were you okay so um so the night after so that was saturday morning that we gave this talk and then saturday night i wound up so saturday was the legal and policy dev room and then after that we had like sort of an informal dinner for speakers just uh, people meeting at a restaurant the restaurant that we met at was like less than a 10 minute walk from my hotel um and i had my trusty map like I do. And I, uh, the only thing that was different that night was that it was raining. And so I set out with an address and I thought I knew roughly where it was. So I didn't worry about it too much. I didn't like ask for specific directions or try to find them because I knew the street and I had my map. But because I was stuck in the rain, my map was completely useless. After looking at it twice, uh, it was a soggy mess. It took me an hour to get to the restaurant, and during that time, Bradley was very worried about my whereabouts. <laughs> well, mainly because your phone battery was dead, and then we couldn't reach you, so we didn't know what was going on. 
Yeah, and it was funny. I was laughing. I had a good time wandering around the streets, but I was sort of like, oh, I just talked about it this morning. And in the end, I got so far afield from where I wanted to be. And I'd ask people for directions and they gave me the wrong direction. So they sent me in the wrong, you know, uh, further out of the way. And, uh, and at the, in the end, I wound up taking a taxi to get to a place that was less than 10 minutes away. And I just, I held the taxi because I saw it and I was like, this is ridiculous. This is just way too late. Um, I had gone into a restaurant and asked them for help. So the lengths to which I went that very night were, you know, it was hilarious and all because my mouth got wet. Yeah. Well, I, the, the, the interesting thing that I told Karen when she arrived is I actually had a laminated map of Brussels, uh, streetwise Brussels map that I bought, which was a proprietary map printed on, you know, the, it was proprietary, it was paper map, but proprietary. Um, from proprietary data, uh, and I lost that a couple of years before at Fosdem, and so I I was using uh, Google Maps to get around because I had I hadn't had that map the last two years because it fell out of my pocket at some point uh, when I was at Fosdem uh, some previous time. So since then, I've been traveling with two maps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to get a laminated map. Uh, that that's probably easy enough to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so I, I, Karen, I, I think, uh, I think that now we, uh, people have been listening for like four episodes now about this talk. So now they've heard it and now they've heard some of the kind of final stuff that we felt about it. Uh, people have questions. They can send those in, I think, about the talk, but uh, we should probably, uh, move on content wise, uh, to whatever's next, uh, in our, in our next episode. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's think for a minute, uh, and you'll listen to the music and we'll figure out what we're going to talk about in our next episode. So, Karen, uh, people have survived the four-episode arc of our Fosdem keynote, and we've you got made a, it. <laughs> and we've got a little bit of more uh, more conference content coming from them for them, because in the next episode we have an interview from CopyleftConf, an interview with one of our favorite people, and someone who is often mentioned on this podcast but rarely heard. The one, the only, Dan Lynch. Although we did hear him briefly on this show, uh, announcing what time people needed to speed forward to uh, uh, earlier this show, we're actually going to talk with him in detail an interview we did back in February at Copyleft Conf this year. So folks can enjoy that in the next episode. Yep, I hope you like it. Um, I'm really excited about that one. Um, and in the meantime... And that's not the only audio we have from Copyleft Conf. We have other audio uh, from interviews and talks. We're going to slowly bring that in. We're going to, because I'm a little worried. We've got, uh, like, we've done this thing we used to do. Remember we used to do all the audio before they did recordings of the dev rooms at Fosdem? Like, we'd spend almost, like, half the year doing talks from Fosdem. People really liked it, though. I suppose, but th- now that that audio is uh, often available elsewhere, so we don't tend to do that. So we're not going to just feed you conference content. Next week, next week we're going to have some interview content with one Mr. Dan Lynch. But then thereafter, we're going to intersperse it. We're going to do other types of stuff and intersperse the copyleft comp content, you know, slowly but surely, as as it fits in with other types of episodes because we don't want to over conference this whole thing, right? Right. So we'll 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 include some. We'll never just include the 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 conference talk uh will include that audio for your convenience but we'll mostly you know but we'll also have discussion about what we we thought about it 
Um, but we won't, as Bradley's saying, we're not going to do it just all at once. So yeah. we'll just kind of intersperse it and we'll have, we have some things in the works about, um, more recent happenings and other things we've been thinking about. Yeah. That's so we're, so we're back uh, as, as always, we're, we're trying to get out weekly. We, we had a little month gap there, but we're, we're working towards getting weekly episodes out. We can't promise that, but we're, we're uh, slowly getting there. Uh, so if people want to, uh, hel- help us do the show, what can they do, Karen? <laughs> they can help support us by donating at sfconservancy.org slash supporter. And if that you happen to be on one of those proprietary podcasting sites, please go give us a good review. If don't sign up just to give us a review, please don't agree to their terms of service if you haven't already. But there are people who have and certainly give us a review there. And you can also email us with telling us to tell us how much you love the show. Yep, and it's still Oddcast at faith.us, even though we're calling it a podcast most of the time, or I am anyway. It's still right to I am Ogca- torn. I like Oddcast. I like Oddcast. Mostly I like Oddcast. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Oscar Golf Golf one is the one to email, Oddcast at faith.us. And of course, you can subscribe to the RSS feed at faith.us. And there's also a Twitter account, which I basically only put our announcements of the shows on at the moment, but... That's at FaithCast if you want to do the Twitter things. You can also email us with critical commentary as well. Yep. <laughs> That's true. So uh, yeah. so uh, we'll all uh, hear you, uh, talk to you, or see them. What, what do we do with them, Karen? Do we see them? Do we hear them? Do we talk to them? What do we do? Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> so next week with Dan Lynch. <laughs> Free As in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free As in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Free as in Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. All right, I got to put back on. Go ahead, you can start. Can I use you asking me not to use it as a funny outtake as a funny outtake? No. Oh, come on. That would be perfect. Nope. Okay. Well, I'm going to save it anyway.